It's good to be back uh, from from camp. I've got my good camp tan on, which is a uh, uh, kind of a kind of a hat line here and a, a watch line here. But um, it is it is so fun to see uh, students and kids just say yes to Jesus. Some of them for the first time. Some of them like really taking the Lord serious for the very first time. And so if, if you've not been here for the last few weeks, um, we've been looking at how the church grew. The very first church that grew, uh, the very first church that ever church, the things that were important to them. And we're trying to recapture some stuff. And we're trying to maybe learn from them how to church well. And so for some of us, that is exactly what the, the students did. That's for the first time saying, yeah, you know what? I'm going to take the Lord serious. For the first time, I'm I'm going to trust Jesus as my savior. And for the first time, I'm going to submit to another body of people and, and do church. For some of us in here, um, this is really fresh and new stuff. For others of us, those of us who have been in church a while, this is kind of, oh yeah, I remember that. I remember that we were supposed to prioritize that. If you've ever been in a church that, I don't know, maybe had an argument or a problem or there was, there was some big dispute um, and it was time to leave, maybe somebody in here or online on our uh, live stream, maybe somebody has been in a church at a moment and the church hurt them, the church had some dysfunction. I've got good news for you. Um, we're going to read about the first church that ever church handling the first problem that ever problemed uh, because it was kind of a big one and they handled it well. So maybe we can learn a thing or two from that. But let's Let's recapture kind of where we are. Um, when, when, when the church forms, um, there's, there's just the apostles. And the apostles go out with the gospel and they share the word. And it says that 3,000 people began to church after that. 3,000 people in the city of Jerusalem started churching. And the things that they prioritized are things that we also prioritize here at Carpenter's Way. They, they, they listened to what God was doing amongst the people. They submitted uh, prayers for each other. They would pray for each other, which means that they would bring their problems into the room and say, you know what, I'm really struggling with X, Y, and Z. Will you pray for me? And so they prayed for each other. They looked at what the apostles were teaching or what we would do is that we would open up the New Testament. Of course, this is happening before the New Testament is written. And, and they're like, well, whatever, whatever the Lord is teaching us, we're willing to follow. And they prioritized the message of Jesus, specifically the message that Jesus not only died on the cross, but that he's alive and well, that he was resurrected. And last week, if you were here, we even looked at, there were other people who claimed to be the Messiah. And the difference between those people who claimed to be the Messiah and the Jesus that we worship today is this. Um, those people died and they stayed dead. Our Savior is a risen Savior, the risen Messiah. He died on the cross a criminal's death and he was raised again. And nobody could stop what Jesus was doing as he was growing his church through thousands and thousands of people. And up until this point, we've read that Peter and John and the rest of the apostles, they would just boldly, with fearlessness and courage and joy, just talk about Jesus. They would go wherever people were, and people would say, tell me more about your Savior, tell me more about your Jesus, and they talked about Jesus because they prioritized, if Jesus is risen from the dead, that means that forgiveness of our sins and peace with our God is possible. This is great news for everybody. And so the church grew. And every time they shared the message, we've read in Acts, that more and more people heard the message and they said, yes, me. Last week at camp, four people from Carpenter's Way said, yes, me. We were added to this church, four members, because they said yes to Jesus, just like they were doing in the first church. And they grew, and they grew, and they grew. But today, they're going to have a problem. Because the church has been growing for a while. And I don't know if you know this or not, but anywhere people are, there is 
some tension that will eventually grow. Someone's going to get their feelings hurt. Someone said something mean to somebody else. Somebody wasn't invited to that one potluck, which, I mean, can we just like have a moment of thanks that we don't really do potlucks here? Those are disgusting. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that you, you weren't invited. If you like potlucks, I'm not hating on you. I'm just a germaphobe. Um, bring grandma's casserole to my house and I'll eat it. But, but you know, the, the, the people get their feelings hurt at church all the time. The number of people who, who will say, you know what, I, I think it's great that you're, you know, talking about Jesus. And I, I remember, I really like Jesus too, honestly. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, but I am not going to go to church. I haven't been to church in 20 years. You know why? Well, tell me, is there like some like super logical reason? Have you done some math that led to you to the belief that church is no longer a priority? No, somebody hurt my feelings 20 years ago and I said, I'll never go back. And then they, they kept their word. They never went back. You know, if, 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 if we're like hitting too close to home, I've got good news for you because this church, the first church that ever churched, They've now been churching for about a year. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6. It's been about one year of the Lord adding to them every time the gospel is taught more and more people. And as these people got together, there started to be differences in how they saw the world around them. There started to be differences in the body. In fact, you will read that they started to treat each other a little differently based on how they spoke what language they were speaking, maybe how they looked. You, we would say, looking back, that the first church that ever church, it took them about a year, and then they started to form cliques, and now there's a problem. And churches have split over less than that. So let's read together um, Acts chapter 6, and let's see if we can pull out some examples and some lessons on how we too should church well in this, what I'm declaring a post-COVID uh, era that we're moving into. It says in chapter 6, verse 1, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, it's still good news, they're still increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Let's pause for a second and just see a couple of things from this. There was a complaint, and there are two groups of people. The two groups of people are the Hellenists and the Hebrews. And their complaint, I'm going to just go on, on record for saying, is kind of valid if it was really happening. Now, it could just be like we interpret that you are ignoring our widows over these widows or you're showing favoritism to the Hebrew widows over the Hellenist widows. But if it was really happening that way, if there was really a group of widows that was being treated differently than another group of widows, we would all look at that and be like, uh-uh, we're, we're going to have to fix that. Let's talk about what these two groups are. The Hebrews are Jewish, uh, excuse me, are, are um, uh, uh, Hebrew-speaking Jews that have converted to Christianity. They speak Hebrew, um, and, and so they're known as you know, the Hebrews. Uh, they grew up in synagogues, they grew up in Jerusalem, and they speak the native tongue of the land. Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews that have converted to Christianity. The Hellenists were uh, groups of people uh, about 100 years before this that have been released from slavery in different parts of the Greco-Roman Empire from Antioch and Syria and, you know, uh, Alexandria down in Egypt and all, all of these different places. And, and they, their native tongue is Greek, but they bow to the, the, the God of Moses, and then now they've converted to Christianity. So they're Jewish, but their language is different. These aren't, these aren't Gentiles that we're talking about. These are two groups of Jews that grew up in different parts of the world, and so they see the world a little differently. They speak a different language natively, although they could both probably speak both languages. And when they got together, they said, yes, we trust the Messiah, um, but we talk a little different, we act a little different, and the complaint is, hey, when we, when we look across the room, 
The group of people that talks different than you guys talk, the group of people that looks different than you guys look, the group of people that, that thinks a little different than you guys think, although we all claim to be the same, it seems like you're treating this group better than this group. That's the complaint. Have you, anybody here um, ever, ever you, you walk into a new school or a new workplace and, and the way that you speak or the way that you look or the way that you dress, just basic cultural elements about you, you immediately felt included because you look and act and sound and smell like these people or you felt discluded. Even though you're all Americans, you're all uh, in this room, you're, you're Texan, I don't know, uh, you, you know, ideologically the same, but because you look different, smell different, dress different, speak different. There was just a little tension right there. Anybody? No? Maybe. And, and so the complaint is, you're treating these people better than these people. And so they take this complaint and they go straight to the apostles. The apostles have been running the show all this point. Uh, the church is only in Jerusalem. And, and the, the, the 12 apostles have just been like teaching God's word. And they hear this complaint. It says in verse 2, And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit uh, and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The, the apostles hear the complaint. They validate the complaint by responding to it. They don't say, no, what you're saying is incorrect. They validate it by saying, we're going to respond. We're going to do something to fix this problem before it festers. We're going we're gonna, to you know, uh, cut this at the root. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to continue to do what God's called us to do. Some people read that, uh, that part that says that, you know, what are we supposed to do, go serve tables like, like the apostles thought they were better than everybody else? Uh, what they say is, as the workload is increasing, um, if I begin to serve the tables, if I begin to address this directly, my uh, ministry is going to go down. I'm called, the apostles are saying, I'm called to teach the word of God. These are the same apostles who are going to the synagogue and being rested every other week for, for teaching the, in the name of Jesus. If they start serving tables, that means that they're out of the synagogue, no longer teaching the word of God. What's happened at this point in the church is that we all celebrate when numbers get big and we all celebrate when, when the church grows. The church is who knows how many thousand. When we saw it a year before this moment, the last chapter before, it was at around eight to 10,000, you know, somewhere in that ballpark. And so it's had a year of growth and it's now grown to the point that a new ministry has come, a new need has come and the apostles have said, if I go to address that myself, what I'm called to do goes down. What I'm called to do is minimized. There's a, there's a real risk of people trying to do too much in the church. There's a real risk of someone saying, no, I, I'm going to be the hero of this, and I'm going to be the hero of that. I'm going to run down the hall, and I'm going to, I'm going to go change a kid's diaper, and I'm going to come in here, and I'm going to work the sound, and I'm going to work the camera while I stand on stage, and I'm going to teach the Word of God. If I'm running around this room, not only do I not do any of those things well, there are things in there that I'm really not good at. Olivia is better at running that camera than I am. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. If I go run the camera, you're like, please bring Olivia back to run the camera uh, because she's better at it. The church has grown to the point where it's time for the apostles to start handing ministry away to people. And they said, you know what? You do have a problem. There is a problem. You are right when you say that there's a problem. It does appear that these widows are being treated than these widows. I think it's time for you to do something about it. And so the apostle says, why don't you call some men that are full of what? What does it say? That are full of, uh, uh, 
Yeah, the spirit full of wisdom. Uh, and and they, said, they said, you call these men to do this work, full of good repute. That's the other one. That you, you get some people that have a good reputation, that they're full of spirit and they're full of wisdom, and we will appoint them to do the thing that you're asking to do because it does need to be addressed. And part, maybe the greatest miracle in all of Acts is about to happen. Uh, it says in verse 5, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. Now, as a leader, I'm just going to tell you, anytime you hear a problem and you come up with a solution and everybody's like, I love that solution. That is great. We should do that. If everybody in agreement on the solution, the Lord has worked a miracle in that room. Okay. It never happens that way. Leaders are always forced to like come up with a solution that 75% or can go along with and the other 25% is like, ah, I didn't get my way. But this leader says, these leaders say, you call up some men of, uh, with great reputation, full of the spirit, full of wisdom to do the thing, to serve in the ministry that you're saying serve. And it pleased the whole crowd. And so they did this. They chose these seven men. And we call these men the, the first deacons. It was like the first time the church ever called deacons. The first one was uh, Stephen. He was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. We'll read about him again in a moment. And Philip. Philip ends up preaching the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch later in Acts. Uh, and he ends up going to Samaria. And Prochorus, Nicanor, uh, Timon. Uh, Timon had a philosophy, Akuna Matata. Actually, we know very little about Timon uh, and Parmenas and Nicholas. I got a boo. Did I hear a boo on that joke? I did. I'm going to go back and hear the recording. I think there was a boo on the Timon joke. And Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Just as an aside, I didn't know what a proselyte of Antioch meant, and so I had to do some research on this. Um, here, here's, here's who he is. Um, he was not born a Jew. Every other man, man that was called out is a Greek name, but they were born Jewish. They're Greek-speaking Jews. They're Hellenists that they were chosen. But uh, our man Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, was born a Greek Gentile. He did not know the Lord, and his family did not know the Lord. But he heard the word of God, the Old Testament, and decided to convert to Judaism uh, as, as an adult. And he was baptized and circumcised as a Jew, and then later was converted to Christianity. That's who Nicholas was. Nicholas is a man who wants to know everything there is about God and is willing to submit to whatever truth he can find out there, that's Nicholas. And Nicholas is called to be the, one of the first deacons. So they get these seven men, all of which, by the way, history says, uh, there's about two I couldn't really track down, but uh, most of these we know ended up dying for the name of Jesus. They were given the choice, live or die. Live and renounce Jesus or die because of Jesus. And the ones that I can figure out, they said, yeah, uh, Jesus is still worth it. They were martyred for this. It says in verse 6, and they set these before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The apostles approved of these seven men, and these men are now sent out to do more ministry. Now, what happens when the church has grown to the point that ministry has to expand, and we have to call more people to serve? What, what happens to the church? Well, verse 7 says, and the word of God continued to increase. That's good. This is what we've been seeing. Every time the church faced a barrier, the word of God continued to increase. They would find the barrier, respond to the barrier, the word of God inc uh, continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Uh, the, the word of God is going to multiply more times in the book of Acts, but this is the first time it's multiplied. Every other time we've read about it growing, it was added. Now, I'm no math genius. I have a college degree with zero math credit, so I don't know a lot about math. Let me tell you what I do know about math. Um, adding is slower than multiplying. 
You want something to grow big, you can add it, and eventually you'll get there. But if you can figure out how to start multiplying this, hey, if you're like 20 years old, just start putting money in an IRA or in your savings account. Put money in your savings account, you can add to it every time you get a paycheck. But if you can put it in some retirement fund, it starts to multiply, you're going to be a millionaire before you know it. It doesn't take much. Multiplied. The word of God multiplies in the people because now the uh, apostles have handed ministry away. When the people of church find their ministry, find the thing that God is calling them to do. When you, Carpenter's Way, find the thing that is calling you to do, and you go and serve in that way, we move from addition to multiplication. We, we, have, we have a ton of opportunity in our community. We have a ton of opportunity uh, in our neighborhood, in your workplaces. And a lot of times we come to church and we just, we think, well, you know, I see a problem. I wish somebody would do something about that. Do you know how hard it is to find a parking spot out there? I wish somebody would help with that. Do you know that it's really hard to, I don't know, check in? I, I wish somebody would help with check in. You know, I wish somebody would, I wish, I wish, I wish. They saw a problem. They brought up the problem. The apostle said, yes, let's address the problem. And their way of addressing it was to equip people to serve, to equip people to do ministry. I believe that a growing church that is going to multiply, a growing community that's going to multiply in the faith moves from addition to multiplication through handing ministry away and people saying, yeah, I'm going to find my ministry. I'm going to find the thing that the Lord is calling me to do and I'm going to do it. It says, they increased in number and the disciples and multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, this is the first time any Jewish priest is, is registered as coming to the faith. When, when the Hebrews, the, uh, the apostles, hand ministry to the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, to go address the Hellenist problem of these people not being treated right, the Hebrew-speaking priests see that the gospel is moving, and it says that the, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What's super interesting to me is that a lot of times when we're in church, we want to say, oh, we need to reach that group over there. And So how do we reach that group over there? Well, we need to look and act and smell and look like that group. We really don't. You know what we need to do? We need to be obedient to what the Lord has called us to do. We need to be obedient and in love with what Jesus is doing in our lives, so much so that we equip people to do things. And when we do that, apparently the gospel becomes so intoxicating that even priests who were before this moment ready to stone Peter say, you know what? There's something to this faith. There's something going on. You have a, do you have a, uh, someone in your workplace? you have somebody like a boss or a coworker, maybe a family member that's really kind of um, uh, argumentative with you, argumentative to the faith? What, what, what should we do? We should remain obedient to, the, to the, the faith that we're called to, and when they see it, just let the Lord do what he's going to do. All right, I'm going, to, I'm going to keep going because uh, we had seven people, uh, one, two, three, four, seven uh, people who were called into ministry. They, they, these were the first deacons. And everything goes great for a little while for them. Let's read about Stephen in verse 8. And it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power. What was he full of? Grace and power. Here's, here's what, how they keep describing Stephen. That Stephen was a man who had a great reputation. And people liked to be around him. He was really smart and he knew the Lord and he wanted to serve so bad. And it says that he was full of grace and power. It means that when he spoke, people would sit down and listen, but they wouldn't listen because he was angry and argumentative. They would listen because he's saying the truth in grace and in power, doing great wonders and signs among the people. 
And it says, and then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those of Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. Remember, Stephen, he was called because he was a Greek-speaking Jew. He was a Hellenist. And after he was called and after him and the rest of them were doing their work, it was the Hebrew-speaking Jews who were like, I want to know the Lord. And so they became obedient to the faith. These people who rose up against Stephen were his own people, the Greek-speaking Jews, the Hellenists. The the synagogue of the freedmen was full of Greek-speaking Jews. It's it's a funny thing whenever you um, decide, like that 15-year-old girl decided, to draw a line in the sand and make Jesus a priority. And you cross over and you, you, have, you have everything about you is prioritized on, I, I, think, I think I'm called to something. I think I'm called to do something bigger. I want to be a part of it. And everybody who talked like you and looked like you, smelled like you, dressed like you, all of the people that didn't cross that line, they get a little frustrated by that sometimes. You know, the camp speaker, uh, he, was, he was telling the, the students, you know, you're, you're going to go to school and, and faith is a priority to you and you're going to have friends who remembered what you were like and they're going to try to bring you down. And I, that's a great message to tell teenagers, but don't we all need to hear that? Isn't that true of us too? That when we decide to, to prioritize the Lord, there's always like a group of people that kind of want to bring you down and it's usually the group of people that we used to hang out with who remembered how much fun it was when we were hanging out and you weren't making the Lord a priority. Um, that's who's coming against Stephen right now. The synagogue of the freedmen was a full of uh, 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 Greek-speaking Jews whose parents were uh, released from slavery. They were held as slaves uh, like in Antioch and um, uh, oh, the one with the volcano. can't think of that island. Anyway, uh, they, 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 that's, that's their background. And now, and now Stephen is telling them, like, you guys want hope. The Messiah has come. Jesus, the one whom we've been looking for, has come. And they have now come against them to dispute him. And in verse 10, it says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Everything that came out of Stephen's mouth was full of wisdom and grace. Uh, it was full of the spirit. And, and it was speaking to them. And they could not come up with a defense, an argument against them. So what they did is that they, in verse 11, they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. Uh, uh, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. He never said that. He will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. They just come up with lies they're going to try to ruin his reputation. They get everybody around him to come up against Stephen. What does Stephen do? Stephen's like, no, you know, you guys have it all wrong. Let me tell you, no, you're, that's not me at all. He does not defend himself one time. What we're going to read in just a moment is the first time anyone said yes to Jesus all the way to the point that their life was on the line. And he's going to be killed because he chooses Jesus. And, and he's going to be the first martyr Christianity sees. And, and he's standing in a room and everybody around him is lying. People are saying that he said things. People are saying that they've seen him do things that he never did. And he never defends himself. He never speaks up in his own defense. Here's what they said in verse 16, 15. It says, in gazing at him, 
All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. As these problems came up, it didn't rock him, it didn't shake him, it didn't mess him up. He's just peacefully listening to people spew lies and hatred about him. These lies that he knows could lead to his death. So I'm going to fast forward. I'm going to, I'm going to paraphrase the entire next chapter, or most of it, because what we have is uh, the, the judges, the priests say, okay, Stephen, what do you have to say for yourself? And so Stephen begins to open his mouth, and instead of giving a defense of what he has and has not done, all he does is share the gospel again. He starts with Abraham, goes to Moses, talks about being enslaved in Egypt, uh, which these guys, yeah, their their parents were released from slavery. This is like a meaningful moment being released from slavery. He talks about uh, King David. He talks about Solomon. And he says, all of these men of our faith have been saying a Messiah is coming. Why do you not see that the Messiah has come? They've been promising that a Messiah is coming, and yet they were ridiculed. And every prophet who said Messiah was coming, everybody who said Messiah was coming is killed. And here I am saying Messiah has come. Are you serious? Do you see the truth here? Verse 51 He ends his speech with this. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He's saying, you guys know the Old Testament and you know how this ended every time. And you know judgment came from the Lord. Turn back now, repent. He's giving them the clearest option. You ever have people in your life that you want to know the Lord? You want to know peace, and you believe that peace is found in the Lord, and you pray for them to have peace. You want for them to have hope in their life. You want for them to have a future. You want for them to have peace with God, and it just tears your heart apart that they just don't connect the dots. Had a little girl uh, just a few nights ago at camp. She's thinking about Jesus. She's thinking about how important this is. And she starts crying. Can't understand a word she's saying. It's like just mumbles. You know, you've ever had the ugly cry? She's crying. There's snot. There's all kinds of things happening on the face. Can't understand her. And she says, I just don't want my parents to go to hell. That's what's hurting her. This guy, he's pleading. He's like, don't you see this? We're repeating it over and over again. You keep repeating the same mistakes, yet there's a way out, and the way out is Jesus. Don't you hear this, people? They don't hear it. Verse 54 says this. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. I've never been so, I've been so mad that I've ground my teeth. I've never ground my teeth at someone. Have you ever done that? Maybe my kids. I don't know. Like you get so mad, they're talking back. You, just, you grind your teeth at them. That's no. I don't know. Never. He, they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, "Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God." Uh, I've, I've been in the room uh, three times when three people have died. And maybe some of you have done this. Uh, I know some hospice workers have talked about this. There's this moment at the end of life where, like, the, I don't know, like the veil or like there's something that happens. My grandfather was talking about people that he was seeing that have died. 
I don't, I don't know, I don't know if that happens for everybody, but Stephen, as, as he is approaching his death, says that he looks into heaven and he sees God, sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, and he starts telling these people who are grinding their teeth at him, I see Jesus, he's standing at the right hand of the Father. And it says in verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears. They're, they are done listening to this guy. They stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. If I'm, if I'm uh, making the movie for this, when we get to this part and you're going across the crowd, the whole crowd has gathered and they're running outside. They're getting ready to take on Stephen. They got rocks in their hand, but their, their jackets are getting in the way. We've got to get this jacket off. You want a good, good swing, right? And we're going to lay this jacket at the feet of this kid who's just listening to everything that's going on. He's been there for the whole thing. It's this kid named Saul. If I'm making the movie, I zoom in on Saul's face and, and it would be such a famous face like you would know something impending is about to happen. Because this kid Saul sees everything that's going on and he sees them kill this man Stephen and for him, this becomes a marked moment. This is how we do church. He looks around at his brothers, the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, Oh, when we don't like what we have to hear, when we don't like this, we just go at them with everything we've got. We grind our teeth at them, we plug up our ears, and we just go at them. It turns out, church, listen, it turns out that no matter how you church, indisputable truth, someone's watching you church, and they're learning how to church from you. If, if we become a group of people that are kind of backbiting and just kind of, yeah, just argumentative, the next generation will watch that and think, oh, that's just how you church. Saul is watching these men and women that he's done you know, church with at the synagogue for his entire life. Men and women that he's loved, men and women that he's done life with, just angrily going after Stephen, plugging up their ears and not listening to anything he has to say. And as they're going to get their pitching arm ready, they're laying their coats at his feet so that they can get a good swing in, and Saul is just taking notes. Church, I, I hope that we're leaving some legacy behind that's better than that. I know that we are. The first church that ever churched, the, uh, the, the, the ones who have submitted to Jesus back here, the ones that Stephen came from, they speak with grace and truth. And the church that Saul goes to is full of anger and hate. They lay it at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen calls out, and he prays. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I wonder if Saul took note of that too. You get hit with a rock, God forgive them. You know, Stephen, he probably knew these guys. He probably grew up with them. These are probably friends that he had in town. This is not a huge community. And people that were his friends before are now picking up baseball-sized rocks and hitting him in the head with it. And he says, God, forgive them. Jesus, please forgive them for that. Please forgive them. God, will you forgive them? Please forgive them. The world hurts. I'll be honest with you. As a Christian, sometimes we get hit with rocks from people that we really, really love. And it's easy to get angry. It's easy to defend our position. It's easy to maybe pick up that rock that just hit you, that word that just hit you, and like, eh, thunk, you know, just like toss it back, that's good. 
you think it feels good in the moment, it never feels good. Uh, Stephen, he was selected because his reputation was so strong and the scriptures say that he was full of wisdom, he was full of grace and power. And when he's hit by a rock by his best friends, Jesus, forgive them. Please forgive them. He just took his licks. He never defended himself. He just keeps taking his licks. Please forgive them. It says, and when he said this, he fell asleep. And some people say that that's just like a euphemism. He finally died. I think that the Lord blessed him by just like, man, take a nap. And we'll let him continue throwing the rocks. But you're not even there to feel the pain anymore. You're not even there. And that's how the first Christian who ever raised their hand for Jesus and said, I would choose Jesus over my very life, lost his life as a martyr for the gospel. His name was Stephen. But there was this kid that they laid coats down at. And the next verse, chapter 8, starts this way, but we're not going to read it all. It says, And Saul approved of his execution. The kid, watching this happen, sees Stephen take his licks and says, Yep, I approve of what just happened. And it says, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church. They've never faced this before. The first church that ever church has never been treated so badly as they're about to be treated. And they were all scattered throughout the region, regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles stayed behind Jer- Jerusalem, but the rest of the Christians, they scatter to Judea and Samaria, which sounds like really, really bad news, except the Lord said in chapter one of Acts, hey, I want you to take my message from Jerusalem uh, into all of Judea, into all of Samaria, and all of the world. And they've been sitting on their hands for the last year, just growing in Jerusalem. Um, and it turns out the Lord uses this tragedy to move the gospel to where he wants it to go. But for now, um, I just want to kind of close. As we, as we look at the first church that ever church, the first time they mourn a death, the first time the church has to have a funeral because someone raised their hand for Jesus, the first time it got really serious real quick was a year into their church. And as we move into our post-COVID world and we learn our lessons of how to church well, uh, I, I want to see just a, a few things. Um, I want to talk to anybody who's ever been in a church that they were mistreated, where there was a problem, uh, whether they be here or you came here because there was a problem. If you're in a church that hasn't met your family's needs, you haven't identified a problem. You've identified an opportunity. As long as Jesus is the priority, that problem, every problem, is an opportunity. The, the, the widows were being mistreated in that first church, and it would have been easy for the Hellenists to be like, you know what, I'm done, I'm out. I'm going to go over here, we're going to start our own church. I'm done, I'm out. Church isn't for me. You're mistreating my, my uh, widows. Instead, what they said was, hey guys, we've got a problem. They brought the problem up in an open dialogue. The other thing that sometimes happens at churches is when there's a real problem and they raise someone in the church, raises their hands like, hey, we've got a problem. Somebody do something. The leaders dismiss that. Now, I've been in churches where that's happened, where the, the leader hears the problem, analyzes it, and it's like, yeah, it's not really. I'm not going to deal with that right now. I'm not a strong enough leader. I'm not going to deal with that right now. And they dismiss that. The first church that ever church said, we have a problem. And the leader said, you're right, we have a problem. But because Jesus is the priority, we're going to figure out what we're supposed to do right here, right now to make this happen. If our problem is the priority, then we talk about our rights. We talk about what we deserve. We talk about how we were mistreated. But if Jesus is the priority, we talk about, well, what's the next step? Where do we go from this point to get where we need to be? Because if this continues, if this problem continues to grow, Jesus will no longer be the priority for these people. 
the gospel will be hindered. But because Jesus was the priority and the people who had the problem, and Jesus was the priority with the leaders who wanted to solve it and move the gospel forward, it says that the word of God increased and people were multiplied. Multiplication happens because it was actually an opportunity for the gospel to address a real root problem. The real root problem was this. There were two groups of people with two different cultures being treated two different ways, but the gospel says, in Christ we're one. In Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. In Christ there is neither male nor female. In Christ there is neither slave nor free. In Christ there is neither black nor white. In Christ there is neither PNG nor Nederland. In Christ, the banner of Jesus makes us one people. We should act like it. And if we find out for any reason that we're not acting like it, hey guys, we've got a problem. Jesus isn't the priority in this situation. How can we make Jesus a priority? Leaders, listen to the problem. Leaders say, okay, you're right. That is, a, that is a problem. We need to address that. Leaders address it. And at the end, Jesus is celebrated because of the problem instead of families just up and leaving church. If you've been hurt by a church and you're here because of that, I'm so sorry that that's happened. Um, I, I hope that you find healing. Uh, I hope that this church, this group of people that call Carpenter's Way home uh, bring uh, just a, a different level of respect uh, to you and, and where you've came from. Um, but I'm going to tell you this. Uh, that problem could have been addressed if Jesus was a priority in all parties. And whatever happens, just know this. When a church grows and people show up, problems will arise. There's no way to prevent it. But problems are only problems if Jesus isn't a priority. But if Jesus is a priority, problems are opportunities for the gospel to address it, for the gospel to grow, for the gospel to serve uh, your family. Uh, the second thing is this, is that when you learn to church well, you'll always find your ministry. When you learn to church well, you're going to realize that there's a need that you are specifically gifted, talented uh, to address and to, to do. Some of you pray like nonstop. Like you are the prayer, the word warrior is used a lot, like prayer warrior. You're the person who like, when you pray, it's like a 30 minute and you could have gone longer, but like you're late for work a little bit. Like you, you're sitting in the parking lot. You've been praying since you left your house and you're, you're a prayer. And you say, well, what's my ministry? We've got people here that, that need your, will you pray for a kid going to camp next week? Will you pray for one of these uh, staff members who are pastoring in the children's department? Will you pray for the, the student ministry? Will you pray for the church? Will you pray for the elders? Will you pray for our community that the gospel would be not just added, but multiplied in this community? You are a prayer warrior, then that is your ministry. You love coffee, go make some coffee. You, you see a problem. You're like, hey, we've got a problem. Um, I noticed that... Uh, you know, these signs, uh, they really should be out an extra 10 minutes early. Well, you know, the apostle said, you're right, you do have a problem. Let's do something about it. Those who see the problem, usually the ones uniquely gifted to address the problem. Um, ministry is not a spectator sport. We, we, will, um, we will see... Carpenter's Way grow, I'm sure. We're going to see the church grow in our community. Um, by the grace of God, I believe that that will happen as well. And it's going to grow to the point that those who are currently in leadership, uh, those who are on the stage, can't do the next thing. Completely taxed out. I have a real fear of one day just like running out of gas all the way. And what I want to do is hand off every piece of ministry that you're willing to take and you guys run with it. You want to open your home for a community group? Do it. 
You want to lead a community group? Do it. You want to open your home, but you don't want to lead a community group? I've got community group leaders that are looking for a home. Like there's every possibility to serve. And when we learn to church well, we're going to find our ministry. And the third thing, and it's either terrifying or encouraging, is this. There is always, always, always someone watching and learning from how you are churching. This is no more true than for parents. Parents, your kids are watching. My kids watch how I church all the time. One of the things that, that I, I pray for is that, is that my kid, um, he sees the church as a place that's fun and, and is full of hope. It's a place that he can, he can uh, learn about Jesus. I, I'm afraid sometimes that in, in the workaholic that lives in me, <laughs> that my kids will say, you know what, the church stole? Like, I don't know. Uh, do, you, do your kids see how you church and think, man, that's a place of joy, that's a place of refuge, that's a place of rescue? Because your kids are watching. There are leaders around you that are watching how you church and they're, they're wanting to learn more. There are people who object to the way that you think, feel, and believe who are watching how you church. Those priests who said yes and were obedient to Jesus, were obedient to Jesus after the Hellenists began churching well. <laughs> there are people who right now say, I don't want to hear about your Jesus. Still sit back and watch how you church. So let's church well, Carpenter's Way. Um, I'm going to pray. And then I believe, do we have a queue? All right, we'll watch the queue together and we'll be dismissed. My challenge is that as we church, that we church well. I ask that you would be praying for other churches in our community as well. Um, when you drive down the road, do you pass any churches on your way to church? Do you pass any churches on your way to Carpenter's Way? Uh, I would ask you that you would just begin bowing in prayer for that church and ask that the Lord would move as they worship, that the Lord would move through their teaching as well. Um, I want to see the gospel multiplied in Mid-County. I don't want to see it added to. I want to see it multiplied, um, and, and we can pray for other churches. Let's pray together. Father, um, we give you glory, and uh, we thank you for uh, the gospel, the banner that is worthy of our lives. Pray, Lord, that we live up to the challenge and that as we learn to church, um, Lord, that you would fill us full of grace and hope and power and peace. God, that we would be a people group with a great reputation and that as others lob their stones at us, give us the courage to forgive them. Uh, as others uh, bring lies and, and um, uh, anger against us, uh, may we just point them to Jesus. Father, may you get the glory instead of us. And um, may we church well. Lord, we pray that you transform our community and we pray that you bring hope to Carpenter's Way and hope to Mid-County. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.